Hello, readers. Evan Pushak is the creator of the wildly popular YouTube channel, The Nerd Rider, and author of the brand new book, Escape to Meaning, essays on Superman, public benches, and other obsessions. Evan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's the release day of the book. The book is out today, so I'm feeling a lot of things. I'm excited, nervous, all that crazy mix of emotions, but I'm happy to be here. So this isn't the first book that you've published. Uh, what is special about this one as compared to the others that you've put out? Well, it is sort of the first book. The other the other books that I published were self-published. And, um, you know, they, they were written all over a decade ago at this point. Um, and the biggest difference is just the, the, the skill that I have versus what I had back then, which was very little. Of course, I didn't know it at the time, but, um, you know, the interim between then and now is the entire nerd writer series. And in those 11 years, I've written hundreds of thousands of words. And back then, I didn't really internalize the fact that you just have to write and write and write and write to make any kind of headway in terms of your skill as a writer. Um, it felt very slow at the beginning, but looking back, you know, it, it feels like an eye blink. And I'm happy to have reached a little further down the line of <laughs> progress than I was back then. Well, it's just like anything else in this world, whether you're talking about yeah. a muscle or a skill, it's either use it or lose it. And if you start to use it, it takes consistency to actually get good. Was there a point where you really feel like you came to your own over the last decade plus now with regards to writing and doing so in a manner where you felt pretty pleased with your work at the end of the day? Um, yeah, I think the thing with YouTube is that and YouTube was really a gift for me in so many ways, but the biggest way was that YouTube isn't precious, or at least it shouldn't be. And when I started, I was making a video a week and there just wasn't time to be a perfectionist. And that really is something that I struggle with. You know, it's hard for me to release anything if I don't feel like it's perfect, which of course it never is, hmm. but with YouTube, it was such a fast turnaround that I was just forced to release what I had. Actually, I was forced to finish. That was really the key. I was forced to finish and, and put it out into the world. And so what that actually started was this kind of perpetual motion machine of me putting something out, looking at it, you know, being slightly disappointed with things I could fix and working on those things in the next video. And so you have this iterative perpetual motion machine where you just slowly get better. That's really the only way to do it. I don't know. I think in maybe six years from the beginning of the Nerd Writer, I started to feel like, okay, I have a little bit of proficiency at this. Um, of course, it's not writing, it's videos. And the scripts that I write for those are just part of what the final product will be. And there's a lot of other expressive material around that. With the book, it was the first time in a long time that I really tried to commit something to prose. And, you know, like, like, like I say in the book, there were days where I felt like this is working and there were days where I felt like it wasn't. 
And um, it is only after completing something and looking back on it with a little bit of a kinder eye that I can say that I'm proud of this work and that I don't, <laughs> I don't, I like it. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, I, I like I like the work, you know, because so, so many, so many days and so many weeks and months and years, I'd look at my work and feel disappointed. And it's gratifying to be in this place now. Well, I feel like you and I share a quality and that is we are our own worst critics at times. Absolutely. But ultimately, do you feel like that's a better thing than not? Yeah, I do. I mean, I I, I don't know if it's a, I'd, I'd be interested to talk to the people who are in love with their own work from the start. <laughs> like who are those people? They're called, you know, so, they're called sociopaths, Evan. Yeah. Okay. It seems so foreign to me that, you know, that kind of thinking, um, you know, you clearly having a podcast on books are a heavy reader as I am. And what that does to you, as Ira Glass says, is it improves your taste. You know, the taste we have is great because we read so much and we know what good writing is. We respond to it. And that taste is the thing that lets you identify what's wrong in your own work. And that the frustrations of that are what you're talking about. It's, it's that self-criticism. Um, the issue is when the self-criticism of the technical things in the writing specifically kind of spills over into like an emotional criticism, self-criticism of your whole life. And you're like picking apart your entire, you know, your, your, all, all your motivations and and your identity and all that stuff, which I think, as I say in the, in the final essay in the book, kind of like a, a necessary part of the process, or not necessary, but an inevitable part of the process. Um, so I do think it's a good thing in, in that it, 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 it uh, motivates you to, to get better. Um, but I could have done with a few of those bad days not being so bad. <laughs> I feel you, man. So the, yeah. the first essay is titled Emerson's Magic. You discovered Emerson while a college student at Boston University. And you say that Emerson taught you two things above all else. One, that we learn by expressing, not by thinking, which yeah. I loved. And also, secondly, but that doesn't mean that the mind doesn't need cogent thoughts to operate. What do you mean by this latter sentiment? So basically, you know, we as human beings, I think, can get along just fine without having a articulate sense of who we are, what we believe, what we think about things. You know, when I say we learn by expressing, it's it's just that, you know, as I say in another essay about uh, the internet, you know, I believe that the mind is made up of language, you know, and so when you compose language in a formal way, um, it's, it's what you're doing in, in just regular thinking too, you're composing language, it's just not as formal. When you write, you are essentially getting a better sense of your own mind. Um, and that allows you to feel, I think, a more stable sense of self and identity and things like that. But as we all know, you don't need to do that to go through life. 
you can have a mess between your ears, which a lot of my thinking is a mess. And and frankly, thinking itself, if you ever just sort of kind of try to introspect and observe what your mind is doing it's 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 like the weirdest messiest repetitive language that that actually that actually pulls a lot from the language that's already in the culture mm. and so that's why we get trapped into cliches and to language patterns that exist uh, independent of us and why it's so important i think for everyone to just write anything whether it's a journal or a book because the, that's the only way you're going to actually break free from the the language patterns that exist in the culture that are just sort of like floating downstream, like floating down the lazy river. Um, and that second sentiment of the mind doesn't need those thoughts to operate is, is it's 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 clear to me every time I sit down to write. Because what was in there, like when I started these essays, I had a good sense, you know, the, 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 the things Emerson taught me were proven in the writing of the book, you know, which was so great to see, you know, it's, I had a sense of all these topics when I submitted the treatment to Simon and Schuster of what I thought they were going to be. They were sometimes close to that, other times not close to that. And the reason is, is because before I actually wrote them down, I didn't really know what I thought about this stuff. And so Emerson is always, always in the back of my mind when I'm writing or thinking, or he's just there. He's always there. You know, he's had such a huge, huge impact on me. Seinfeld is another guy that's had an impact on you. You have an essay titled Jerry Seinfeld's Intangibles, much like with Emerson, you find yourself drawing to the musings of Seinfeld because he possesses world-class articulation. Considering your popularity, you're pretty good at this now too, Evan. So what is the key to the magic that is articulation? Well, I think that the key is what we've been talking about, essentially just writing, you know, more, more writing, more reading, of course, um, you know, the reason that you know Seinfeld and the Seinfeld essay and the Emerson essay are like sister essays to me, um, they both are articulators and expressors of experience. And the cool thing about comedy, stand-up comedy, is that, or the, I should say, the difficult thing about stand-up comedy is that you have to be intelligible the first time around. And I say that in the essay that Emerson, you know, I, I, I frequently reread Emerson paragraphs. Like I'll read a paragraph and go, what was that? You know, mm -hmm. like it, what, what, what was he saying there? And I'll have to go back. It's something we all do when we're kind of phasing out as we read, you know, it's like you, you get through a page and you think, oh, what, what was, what was actually going on there? You zone out, you go back, you read it again, but you can do that. You have, you, you're with the book. For a stand-up comedian who's on a stage speaking to an audience, if they are zoning out or don't get the premise or don't understand the the path that, that they're taking you on, the joke just fails, and that means that they have to be they have to be masters of art of articulation. They just have to be. Um, and so, for Seinfeld and for Emerson and for other writers. It's all the same. It's just practice. It's just 
seeing what an audience responds to. And it is not something that is, that is available to a select few. You know, the great thing about Shakespeare was that he was just a normal dude. You know, there was never any pretension that he was some kind of like super genius, hmm. you know, like a Stephen Hawking when it comes to science, somebody who was born with those kind of innate abilities. I think that the powers and the influence and the impact that Emerson, Shakespeare, Seinfeld have are open to anybody who wants to just sit down and write every day. You and I both love stand-up. And while I do watch a fair amount of stand-up on television through streaming services or whatever else, there's nothing like being there in person because if you're doing yeah. it right, it forces you to be present. And I'm fortunate right now living in Austin. It is literally in front of my eyes turning into a stand-up mecca in this country, yeah. on this planet. And I'll bring friends to stand-up shows at the three or four different venues that exist in town now. And oftentimes they're asked to put their phones in this yonder pouch, which keeps you from being able to record the set, which I completely understand. But the added benefit of that is that people aren't distracted by their technology at the same time. And so you're forced to sit there, listen to what that person is saying on stage and hopefully respond appropriately. Now, there was an instance a couple of weeks ago where this girl was just being completely obnoxious, like she was hooting and hollering at the wrong parts and then weirdly not laughing at the punchlines. But for every moment like that, you have yeah. getting to go see Louis C.K. at a 200-seat club sitting 10 feet away from the stage and just the brilliance on display. Well, the great, the cool thing about, I mean, you know, Emerson and we're talking about, Emerson, we're talking about this book, it's prose. But there, the cool thing about expression are, are are the different forms that it comes in. And like you're saying, a live stand-up show is words, right? And the words have to be intelligible, but it's also so much more. It's it's body language, it's it, it, it is tone, you know, and I'm obsessed with writers, but I'm also obsessed with every other form of art. You know, I, I just, and what I love about it, them are the unique things that each have. That's why I'm obsessed with film. It's specifically movies that are, that use the tool, the specific tools of film, you know, or use the specific tools of stand-up comedy. Or for the nerd writer, it was always, how can I use the, unique strengths of YouTube to tell a story. Um, and so writing is one thing, but the, the, you know, language is the dominant sort of symbolic language that we all use, but there are also many other symbolic languages existing and every form of art and expression has like, it's a giant Venn diagram with language in the center, but they all have their unique things. And when the stand-up comedians use use the stage use the presence in a in a special way that's just that's just the best agreed so another essay that you alluded to a couple of answers ago is i think the internet wants to be my mind one i'm glad i'm not alone with the self-hate that occurs every sunday morning when i get my weekly screen time <laughs> report from iphones yeah but it's interesting that you point out that screen time management tools are an example of an industry providing solutions 
to problems it creates, akin to big tobacco creating anti-cancer PSAs. Big oil, specifically BP, and I didn't realize this until reading this book, coining the term uh, carbon footprint. I'd also add big food to that category as well, considering the amount they've invested in the diet industry on top of all the cutesy marketing terms that they've also come up with to make crappy food sound healthier. You point out that it's wrong to call Facebook's users its customers when advertisers are its true customers. Why is that? Well, I mean, I'm not the first person to say that, certainly. You know, that that that, that is clearly because that's clearly true because the product, you know, the way that Facebook makes money, and I quote a quarterly report of Facebook in the book, 98%, 98.6% of its profits from that quarter were from advertisers, you know, and so it is clearly selling to advertisers. Those are the customers. So then what's the product? And as many people have said before, it's clear the product is us, specifically our data. And that just creates an incentive structure to keep us there, keep us hooked, keep us online. And, you know, these are, these are things that I think have been brought up by a lot of people. The angle that I was taking with it was more personal, really, in that what is actually happening to me and my brain in these time sucks you know, these, these, these wormholes online, or when I'm scrolling, and I lose time, you know, and I lose hours, what actually is happening. And that's when I use the theory of mind from an old professor at Boston University. Leah Greenfeld. Yeah, like Leah Greenfeld, who was so formative in my thinking about how the mind works. And it's a really interesting conclusion, I think, which is that if the mind is language, and the mind is a process a function of time it means that the language that we give up to the internet is really like you know it's really like uh, a seance like i say in the book where the the internet becomes your mind for a brief time and it goes back to the other thing too where what we were talking about which is that there is lang like when you don't think about what you believe and what you think and who you are you fall into the patterns that already exist in the language, in the culture. In this case, the dominant language of our time is the internet. You know, the dominant culture of our time, the one that we clearly spend the most hours on is the internet. And so it's a scary thought that we actually, in a sense, disappear from our own lives for the times that we get caught up in this. And I try to sort of communicate that it that the that that fear in the in the final, you know, in the final paragraphs of that uh, essay where I backslide, as we all do, hmm. you know, where we set up the great habits, we leave our phone in the other room, we 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 don't we delete the apps from our phone, and it lasts for maybe a few months. Until somehow it creeps back and all of a sudden the apps are back and all of a sudden the phone's on your bedstand and it's the first thing you check in the morning. I think we all are familiar with that.
Yeah, and there's definitely a healthy relationship that can be formed as well. And one of my favorite passages in this entire book was in this essay. It is ingesting info is only half of learning. The other half, the more important half, is responding to that info, thinking critically about it and what it implies. And that's not to say you can't have certain trivialities that you're paying attention to on television or your phone or your computer screen at times, but hopefully a majority of what it is that you're looking at is forcing you to think deeper, maybe write about it uh, to some earlier points that you've made and uh, be a little bit more proactive versus that passive user. Totally. And I think the key to that, which is the, um, which is the danger of the kind of internet that I'm talking about is the key to that response is time. And the internet is not interested in giving you gaps after the things you consume because it's so eager to push the next thing onto you. And that is a little dangerous. Of course, as you say, like the internet is not good or bad. It is just what is. It is a you know vital central part of culture of, of this era. And clearly I've made a living from the internet. You know, like if the internet didn't exist, I would have a different life. And so I owe a lot to these, the internet and even more specifically to these social media companies, YouTube, you know, that, that they innate YouTube enabled me to do this, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that, of course, that we can't be critical. And at least for me, it is very clear that there's a, a, a distress in the community that, um, at the least is worrying at the worst is sort of dangerous for, for the future. Yeah. Especially younger people in this country. I feel like yeah. the two and a half years have created more of a screen dependency for those younger, most impressionable minds out there. And it's a scary thing, but I think it's also important to talk about these things to maybe help people to get a better grip because unfortunately we can't count on the tech companies to take those steps on their own. Yeah. And I think like teaching Teaching identity, teaching the way the mind works is a key way to head this off upstream of the problem because you can set a limit on some, on your child's phone. You can, you can try to create barriers around the kind of information they consume. But understanding why it's actually dangerous to you, your mind, your identity is I think probably gonna have a greater impact on your ability to pull yourself away when it's necessary. Um, and so it's like a holistic, set of solutions that need to be considered and implemented. And, you know, our society is not really great at, at holistic solutions. We like to focus on one thing and say, we solved it, you know? And so I'd like to say I'm optimistic, but I think as the essay shows, I'm not very, <laughs> for this particular thing, I'm not very optimistic. Perhaps the antithesis to technology is a public bench 
Yes. And you have the essay, Ode to Public Benches. I know you just put out a nerd writer video on this as well. People watching is one obvious benefit to sitting on a public bench. What else do you love about them? Well, I love the sense of calm that I feel on public benches. And, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that as the antithesis. It's it's so funny how all these essays really connected. I did not intend this at the start. You know, I, I thought they were very separate, actually. And, and like saying, you know, Emerson and Seinfeld are sister essays. These have a kind of relationship. The cyberpunk and the Lord of the Rings essay are kind of also sister essays. Just, just, I just had to mention that because it's it's really cool to to not know that's happening and then see it and see someone also like react that way. Well, you and you clearly realized it at some point because you yeah. did start to intertwine your thoughts in the various essays, and I love that about it. Yeah, I mean, well, that actually what that was actually what I think keyed me into it. Hmm. Where I would run up to a place in the essay, and I'm like, I I, I would think, oh, I, I could quote Emerson here. You know, or or I could use the I could paraphrase the the piece from Emerson's experience as the start of the internet essay, which is about you know waking up and and you're you're on this timeline and you don't know where you are, you know. And so I I, I actively started to do that as I realized they were already connecting. But anyway, sorry, we're getting off topic. <laughs> um, benches, you know. I feel such a calmness there. And the truth is that calmness is really not what you think about when you think about big metropolitan centers. And it started with me looking into myself and realizing that's the way I feel. And then after researching and reading a lot, you know, I began to learn just how important the bench, the humble bench is to urban planning of major metropolitan centers and how much more important it's becoming post COVID, but you know, a trend that was already happening, which was trying to carve out green spaces in these cities that were overrun by cars in the 20th century, because commuting from the suburbs was just the norm, you know, but now we have all these people who live in cities and want outdoor space that just became starkly clear during COVID, of course, but people were already, I think, realizing how important it was for individual and community health to have public spaces. The bench is just a huge part of that equation. You know, it's not something you might walk by and not see, um, but it allows you, like I say in the, in the essay, to step away from the herd of people walking, you know, maniacs walking running trying to get from point a to point b you know it allows you to step away observe the city and it changes radically changes your relationship with the architecture of the city in fact it makes the architecture something to consider and think about and so it follows from that that we should design it design the spaces as something worth thinking and contemplating about you know and so it is just a little thing that really is a i found a much bigger piece of of the life and the interaction of of city architecture and people and we're talking about relationships in the book i'm obsessed with cities 
clearly the cyberpunk essay, like I, I have a thing about cities, you know, uh, there, there is something there that I romanticize and fantasize. And so looking at the bench was a way, I think, to, to look at it from a more grounded, you know, more grounded perspective. And it was just such a pleasure to, to write that, that piece. Why is Venice, Italy, your favorite place to sit, considering how much you love cities? So I love, I had really good luck to live there in 2016 for a few months. And one thing you notice about Venice, you don't really notice it until you leave, which mm -hmm. is that when I left Venice and came back to a normal city, I was almost like physically shocked by the 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 aggressiveness of cars hmm. and i didn't really put it together but because of the canal structure of venice because every canal has you know steps over a step footbridge you can't have any wheel you cannot have any wheeled forms of transportation you know and so there is a calmness there that exists because of the architecture of the city that doesn't exist in other cities that is really, really special. And talk about places that were designed to for contemplation. Hmm. I mean, just looking at any corner, any of the structures, it is just stunningly beautiful. Um, and... I miss that in modern architecture. I miss that in the steel and glass skyscrapers that we see in so many cities. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe they inspire some people. They don't really inspire inspire me. Yeah, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, but I lived in Chicago for seven years. And just how incredibly that city is organized, the grid system that it's on, on top yeah. of, yeah, it has more skyscrapers, but... The exception of the ugly ass Trump Tower, pretty much every building has context to the other buildings around it as well. Yeah. There is something inspirational about just being in something that is that well thought out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Every city has its has has its beauties uh, and for different reasons. I haven't spent much time in Chicago. I really should. I really should get there. Another essay is titled Superman is Clark Kent. Interesting to think about something that you detailed in this essay, and that is a difference in attitude between Superman and Batman, really coming down to parenting. Both obviously lose parents at younger ages, but both childhoods and adolescence end up going in drastically different directions, leading to a different sort of attitude towards even fighting crime as adults. But at the same time, both end up as fairly stoic characters as adults as well. So why do you think both ended up this way, even if they maybe have different outlooks on life in the process? Well, the stoicism of Superman and Batman, I think, is partly down to the, the sort of the iconic nature of the characters and, 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 the, and the length of time they've existed and when they were created in the 30s. It's a part of golden age heroes that you can't ever really remove because it's sort of baked into the dna but 
what you really hit on is I think just a key, key fulcrum point in the lives of what are essentially the two most iconic superheroes. And Bruce Wayne's parents are violently taken from him. And at a very young age, much younger than, well, you know, it, it changes, but Superman, Superman's father dies sometime, usually when he's like 17 or 18, about to leave for college or whatever you would. Bruce's parents were taken violently in a violent city at six or seven. And the way he internalizes that, their their absence is, is a form of revenge. And writers use that really, really deep trauma in, in super, super interesting ways. And we've seen that in lots of Batman media. The point I make in the essay is that why can't we do the same for Superman? What is the key point about Jonathan Kent dying in Superman 1978, for example? The key point is that Clark cannot save Jonathan. He is essentially an invincible creature, alien being who physically can do anything. And yet here he is confronted with a form of pain that cannot be protected against. And so the beauty in my estimation of the character and what I, what I say in the essay is that we should use Superman as a, as a way to identify the forms of pain and struggle and conflict that physical might can't protect us from, can't defeat. You know, that, that, that to me is the heart of the character. And in a lot of Superman media, we don't really get that angle. I mean, the greatest example, of course, is kryptonite. You know, kryptonite is a plot device in the form of a green rock and they created it the not the creators of superman but years later as a way to give him some kind of vulnerability because none of the none of the supervillains that they made could do anything they could do anything to this guy you know but an externalized vulnerability is not an interesting form of vulnerability and you see that with Batman, that all his trauma and internal struggle is what makes him such a compelling character and why he's just traveled through time without any issue of relevance. Superman has that too, but too few writers in my estimation have seen it and leveraged it for good, interesting stories. What do you think the perfect Superman movie would look like? You know, I've often, yeah, look, I have often daydreamed about this and I would love to, you know, one day in the future, write an actual Superman script. Um, I don't know, but I do think that one key thing that I'd like to see, which I also meant mentioned in the essay is some kind of 
journalistic story where Clark and Lois are actually doing journalism. Hmm. And that's another example of something that cannot be defeated with physical might. It's, it, it, it is, like I say in the book, it is the Superman can stop the burning building from falling, but Clark as a journalist can expose the contractors that took bribes to put in cheap flammable cladding in the building, which is the reason it caught fire. You know, there, there is there is a Superman story out there. There is a Superman movie out there that looks a lot more like All the President's Men. Hmm. With, of course, I mean, we're going to have action. We're going to throw, we're going to have the action. Don't worry about that. We're going to throw that in there. But <laughs> if we have something like that, you know, where, it, where, it, where it's one of these, these like the like the post or all the president's men or spotlight that would be a super cool superman story and it would focus on clark kent which is you know the point that i'm just hammering home in that piece obviously the movie never got made do you think nicholas cage would have made a good superman i would have loved to see it Me too. i would have loved to see it i'm gonna see every superman adaptation you know and, and listen I, there's a lot that i don't like but um, I don't think I don't think conforming to a specific vision of what Superman can look like is like uh, is helpful because let, make him weird, make him Nicolas Cage weird. Why not? See see what the character see how the character can stretch, you know. Um, throw in an actor of that kind of vitality and craziness and see what it, what it does to the superman mythos i'm i'm not for for most kinds of media adaptation i'm not precious about like some some platonic ideal of what the character looks like you know it's fictional characters it's superheroes exactly you know, there there have been all kind of superman variants in the comics that are way out there yeah, why not do the same for why not have Nicolas Cage be screaming <laughs> with that con air hair yeah <laughs> yeah all right the last essay that I will ask a question about is titled on friendship you call friendship forging a shared identity interesting to learn that the idea of identity didn't really even come to be until the 1950s but what exactly is identity Evan well that's sort of the question we've been circling this whole interview, I think. I mean, for me, what identity is, and this again comes very largely from Leah Greenfeld, is if you imagine your life as a symbolic map, right, where everything that you know and have heard of and all the people and everything you've read is this map of symbols that spreads out around you. Identity is where you are in relation to everything on that symbolic map. And the stronger sense of you, you that, that, that you have of how you relate to everything in your symbolic universe, the more stable your identity will be. And that's really the key. 
you know, stability in identity. And that can be formed in a lot of different ways. It can be formed from a relationship. It can, it can be, be formed from a interest and all these things. But a huge piece of that is your relationships and specifically your friends. And so thinking of yourself as this individual discrete unit that's existing in their own silo and the rest of the world is out here that you're interacting with, I don't think it's really the right way to see it. If you see it in this kind of map visualization, it's really the map and you moving together with you understanding just where you are on that map or where you are in relationship to the things around it. And your friends are the, and your family, of course, are the key like stakes in that 3D space. And so who you are is them, you know, they are part of you and not just in kind of like a, a poetic fancy way of talking, but actually literally they are a part of you by virtue of the fact that they are situating you on the map, you know, just like your love of cheeseburgers that situates you on the map too. It's just not as strong as a, of a focal point, but your friends and your family are the strongest stakes in there and, you know, your work. And so that I think is, is a better way of thinking of identity. And it, it helped me to understand this deep, close bond that I have with my friends. And um, I'm so excited that you brought it up because like we said, the book is out today and all the friends that I talk about in that piece, and I don't name them, but a specific group from college, they don't know that I wrote that essay. Hmm. And so today is the first day that they're going to see that. And I really am excited. It's kind of like a gift to them in a way, you know, and what they did for me. And I'm so excited for them to not know it's there and then stumble upon it. Um, so yeah, it's a big day for that reason. Love that. He is Evan Pushak, creator of the wildly popular YouTube channel, The Nerved Writer, and the author of the brand new book, Escape to Meaning, Essays on Superman, Public Benches, and Other Obsessions. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Evan, you wrote, I believe in the Emerson essay, that when you read nonfiction today, you wish you had access to the author to clarify that which you don't understand or reach your own understanding through discussion and debate. Thank you for allowing me to do that with you today. It, it was a pleasure, Trey. And uh, hopefully we can talk again. Thank you to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forger Digital. And thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Bye.